If you were an Israelite parent and you had a son, let's say he's seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, ten years old, and you know how your kids like to talk about what they want to be when they grow up, and you hear him one day say, when I grow up, I want to be one of God's prophets. If you were an Israelite and you had seen what the life of a prophet was like, you would probably discourage that kind of talk. Number one, it's not a profession you could just choose. It's not something you just went to school for and when you were ready, well, I've graduated, now I'm a prophet. God chose his prophets and his word often came to them at inopportune times and sometimes in strange ways, often unexpected. And two, while it may sound like there is an appeal of the profession, of having closeness with God, of getting to see some things others don't get a chance to see, hearing his voice directly or hearing messages through visions that he provides, the cost to your personal life is a toll that I don't know how many of us could really tolerate. Take Ezekiel, for example. If you want to turn to Ezekiel, you might want to skim through some of this tonight. We're doing an overview of the book. You'll find it on page 557 of a pew Bible if you want to grab one of those. Ezekiel is a priest. It's what he's trained to be his whole life. But now he's been taken as a captive into Babylon, foreign land, place where he's never been. And he cannot truly practice his priesthood because there's no temple there. And he's in a foreign land. But God sees in Ezekiel someone who would be receptive to his message in receiving it and then in sharing it with his fellow exiles in Babylon. So while Ezekiel is by a river one day, he's going to receive his first of some very bizarre visions. You say, what a privilege, right, to be chosen by God. Well, that privilege is about to involve Ezekiel doing the following. Eating a scroll, going an extended period of time without being able to speak unless God gave him something specifically to speak, so a a lifestyle of silence. Some of us may need that. Lying on his side virtually all day from indications in the text in public with his face directed toward this model of Jerusalem that he has built for everyone to see him lying on his side all day. That's his job for a long time, over a year. Again, no words, just lying there. Surviving during this time by eating bread every day which was cooked over a fire of cow dung. And that is only after God allowing him that concession, which he originally asked Ezekiel to cook it over human dung. Remember, Ezekiel's a priest. Priests are even more conscious about things that are pure and impure than your everyday person. Speaking of being a priest, Ezekiel is someone who ends up having to publicly shave his head and his beard with a sword, a weapon of war. Doing this in front of people, he's going to wave the, the hair that comes off of his, his face and off his head whenever he is done with this. Now, as Mark highlighted this morning in our Bible class of Isaiah, that's, that's shameful for any man in this time period. Before a priest, it was prohibited. 
at least it normally was, something you don't do. And surely far more traumatic than any of this, of all the things that Ezekiel experiences, those are some bizarre ones, but I cannot imagine what it was like when he receives the instructions that he is to know that his wife is going to die and to watch her die and then to be told by God that he cannot even grieve for her. Now you may say, why would God call someone to do all these bizarre things, some painful things, some embarrassing things? All these instructions have significance. God doesn't just do it just to say, will you do this? He's trying to teach a message through each of these things, not only to the prophet, but more importantly, to the people around him, the people who will see these things. God often has his prophets preach through their actions in addition to the words that he gives them. Sometimes, as in Ezekiel's case, that is the message. He wants the focus to be on his actions, for the people to figure out the message on their own. You know, a little game of charades here. But it shouldn't be too hard for them to figure out. There's a bottle of Jerusalem. He's lying on his side. You know, everything is related to something that either God is experiencing himself or what the people are currently experiencing or what they will experience in the future. These acted parables are not just bizarre for the sake of being bizarre. They're vivid illustrations. You know, they, they stick in your mind if you were to see these things happening. They teach a message. Tonight, we're going to focus on connecting some of these events and visions in Ezekiel's lifetime and recorded in this book of prophecy. We're going to focus specifically on connecting them with Jesus. This is a series we've been coming back to every few weeks for quite a while, trying to look at one book of the Bible, do an overview of that book through the lens of how this book helps prepare us for a greater appreciation of Jesus. How we see Jesus on every page of this book. Now Ezekiel is one of those books where there's so much here, we're not going to do complete justice to it tonight. I'm just going to highlight a few things for you tonight for you to think through with me from Ezekiel's experiences and from his visions that will help us have a better appreciation for the message about Jesus even in this time which is about 600 years before he would arrive. Tonight we're going to focus on three ideas in particular and here they are. The hope of a new temple, the hope of a new people, the hope of a new shepherd. A new temple, a new people, a new shepherd. There's a lot we could talk about. For time's sake, we're going to hit those three. Temple. Judah in this time has become spiritually bankrupt. The northern tribes of Israel had already been taken into exile. They've met their judgment over a hundred years before this. And there have been moments of revival in Judah leading up to this time, but they haven't lasted. So through a series of three deportations, the Babylonian Empire, which has now become the world's most powerful empire, and they have brought their siege weapons against Jerusalem, and they've tried to let them stay there, at least to an extent. They've already taken away some of the captives, and it seems that Ezekiel was one of the first to go. Jeremiah, as we talked about, is one of the last remaining people who actually is left in Jerusalem after the city is destroyed because the puppet king that 
Nebuchadnezzar sets up in Judah, he's not going to play along for very long. Uh, and ultimately, he's going to come and he's going to destroy that city. And he's going to destroy the temple itself. The temple where, that Solomon had, had built you know, almost 400 years before this and where they had put so much of their stock of who we are as God's unique people. This is the symbol for us that God is with us. God is among us. We are the people of God. Our temple is standing. In Jeremiah's time, they, said we're, they basically said we're invincible. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But now the temple of the Lord is no longer going to be standing, at least... It is at the beginning of when Ezekiel sees his first vision. But it's not going to be for long. You see, Ezekiel has already been carried into exile. But he's going to get a vision about what's about to happen to the rest of the city of Jerusalem and the inhabitants and what is left there. This message is going to come in a series of stages. The first vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1 is one of the most vivid, one of the most memorable the wheel in the middle of the wheel. Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. All songs have been written about this one because it's, it's bizarre. And you read it and you try to picture it and you try to draw it in your mind of what's actually going on here. I'm convinced that the language is intended to be overwhelming because it's something that's very hard for us to fathom. But here's some of the things that we do know here. He's seeing the glory of God. Now that word is a loaded word and it's going to show up a lot in Ezekiel. At least the idea of the glory of God. The presence of God, the glory of God. The word means weight. The weight. As if you were weighing his presence on a scale. And it can, it's the heaviest thing that you can imagine. That's God. Alright, there is substance there. Even though you may not even be able to see it. You know, but here Ezekiel sees it. It's in a visible form. Now the people of old should have been able to see it. The word Shekinah for the glory, you know, it's, it's captured a lot of times in the wilderness wandering through this pillar that leads them through the day and through the night. And there is a fire that glows from within this cloud, which they can see the fire at nighttime and they see it as cloud during the day and it's leading them to the place where God would have them. And whenever they would pitch that tabernacle, which is the temporary temple, now that's the Shekinah glory of God would settle there in the most holy place. So they could have visual evidence that God was among them. When Solomon builds this temple, that same glory comes rushing in, fills that house. It's called the house of God. It's what a temple's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a sacred space. It's supposed to be a shared space between God and his people. I want to be among my people, God says repeatedly. He doesn't want to be a God that just remains up in the heavens. When you see the temple, you're supposed to see a shadow of what's in the heavens, what's in heaven. He has a heavenly temple. He has an earthly temple. And there's a connection there. What Ezekiel is seeing here is that glory of God, but it's not in the temple when he sees it. It's on this platform. It's like crystal. It's, it's suspended and underneath carrying this platform are these strange creatures called cherubim. Now, they're not called cherubim in chapter 1, but later on they're going to be identified as cherubim. They just are described as very strange creatures with wings here in chapter 1 with uh, animal-like characteristics. They're heavenly beings. They're in that spiritual being class. They're bizarre. 
And yet Ezekiel sees them, and it's like they were in the temple, because there are representations of the cherubim in the temple, especially right on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the wings of the cherubim right there. That's the mercy seat of God. That's where his presence really is. They go together, the presence of God and the cherubim. They are guardians of the sacred space, of the glory of God. Ezekiel is seeing them, and yet they're not stationed in the temple. They're holding what's described as wheels with wheels within the wheels. Now the best way that I could describe that is it's a symbol that's trying to get across that whatever this vehicle is, because that's really what it is, it's this platform that they are holding, and it's to convey to us that it is something that is intended to move any which way you could imagine, any direction. It's not bound by a track. It's not bound just vertical and then up and down. It's not bound just horizontally. It can go any way. I'm going to call this vehicle the glory mobile. If you were with us in our temple study, that's what I called it because it carries the glory of God. If you see the end of Ezekiel's first vision here, he sees, he sees on the top of this there's a throne. And you see the, the language of radiance, brightness, and the light that's often attached to the glory of God in the Bible. It's there. But it's mobile because it's getting ready to move from where it's been. Now this makes sense a little bit more when you jump ahead to chapter 8. And you're going to read chapters 8 and you're going to read chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I encourage you to read some of this if you want to see it in detail. And now Ezekiel's going to get a better idea of what is going on with that glory mobile because he's going to be taken on a guided tour of the Jerusalem temple. It's still standing at this point. Not for long. But it is right now. Now remember, Ezekiel's over in Babylon. We don't know if he's transported there in body or just his consciousness is transported there in a vision. You know, we're, we're not told for sure, but he, he's there. He sees it. He sees what's going on in the, the Jerusalem temple. And this guided tour is going to have four stops in particular as the, God is going to take Ezekiel and move him closer and closer to the inner most sacred spots of the temple. You know, at start you have the outer courts, you have wall around there. Well, at each of the stops, and you can read this in detail, each of the stops, Ezekiel is going to see some people or some evidence that people have been there and they are either worshiping or they, there's evidence they have, they have been worshiping, they've been longing for these gods of the nations not of Yahweh, not of their one true God, that they've been worshiping, giving themselves over to these other gods. In fact, when he gets to the last vision, right at the entrance of the holy place, there are elders. I think the text says that he says there's about 25 elders of Israel. These should be the spiritual leaders. And what are they doing? They're bowing down and worshiping. Okay, well, good. That's what the temple's for. No, they're not worshiping in the direction of God and the most holy space. They're at the east entrance of the temple and, and they are facing outward. They're not facing God. They literally have their backsides to God and have forsaken him in order to bow down toward the sun. It's something that pagans would do. And they're doing this in the house of God. God's house. 
it's not God's house anymore. They've kicked God out of his own house is basically what Ezekiel's visions boil down to. It's no longer truly his temple. And so Ezekiel keeps watching in his visions as for what unfolds. And you're going to see as you go down through chapters 10 and 11 that that glory mobile, now he sees what it's for. Because that glory of God that was in the Holy of Holies, not anymore. He leaves the temple. God does. His glory. Why? Because they've no longer treated it as a sacred space. It's no longer a holy space. They've kicked him out. It's no longer his sanctuary. Leaves the temple, goes to the wall of Jerusalem, and then exits Jerusalem. And what you're left with is a city that is going to be destroyed by an enemy, including its temple. And that's exactly what happens in the last of the three deportations when they've really ticked Nebuchadnezzar off and he doesn't show any mercy to them. And he finishes the destruction of this city and it lies in waste. Now that's setting up your temple theme. Sounds pretty bleak. But I love what the prophets do. The prophets take us into the depths of what's wrong. Okay, They, they show us the tragedy of what's going on with our lives. But they don't leave us there in the depths. Isn't that what the whole Bible does, really? It, it takes us into the depths of what sin does to us, of what, what this is, it, trying to really get across to us you know, how much we need salvation. Sometimes we, we need those vivid pictures to see how far we have bottomed out before we appreciate the salvation he offers. That's exactly what the prophets do. They, they, they give you that, those pictures and they say there's going to be judgment. But they also end with visions of hope. They point you toward a future where there's something even better available. Where God is not a God who destroys just to, to destroy. He's a God who disciplines, but then he's a God who redeems. He buys it back. He restores. He makes it even stronger than it was to begin with, if you allow him to. And that's what we get in Ezekiel. We have a temple that's been destroyed. We have the glory of God departed from that temple. But if you read on to the end of this book, you're going to see a vision in chapters 47 and then some description on into 48. It's really the climax of this book. Everything in this book has been setting you up for this point. Because there's a picture of a new temple. And this new temple has a river that's flowing out from it. And it's a river that it says that as it flows out, it's fresh water, it's living water. And it will even make salt water, dead water, like the Dead Sea, as it's used there. People would have been very familiar with that. will even make it fresh. That's a strong image for what comes forth from this temple, that water that flows. If you were with us, I believe it was last week, maybe, or the week before, when we talked about that idea of living water coming up time and time again in the scriptures and how Jesus connects that to what he can offer. John chapter 4, John chapter 7. I even mentioned it in my sermon this morning. You know, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. 
Now, we did a study of the temple again not too long ago. If you're interested in getting that and you didn't get those materials before, just see me afterwards. There's a lot going on here, not just in Ezekiel, but in the whole Bible. But here's the beautiful thing about this, this theme. Yes, the people would return from their exile. Yes, they would rebuild a physical temple in Jerusalem. But it's never quite the same. Number one, the, 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 some of the people who had seen the first temple, who were still alive, and then they see this next one, they cry because they remember the, the splendor of the first one. But secondly, and even more importantly, what you never read of in the scriptures is the glory of God returning to that new temple. You expect it. You get to Ezra and Nehemiah, and you see that, that they've been working on this, you know, the book of Ezra. Now let the, we're, we are working on rebuilding this temple and they have their, what's like the dedication ceremony at the end of it, like what Solomon had. And at the end of Solomon's ceremony, the people can see the glory of God fill that temple. They know he's there. You never read that with Zerubbabel's temple. So the new temple that Ezekiel's talking about is something even greater. It's something better. And if you look at those connections, especially in the Gospel of John, I'm convinced it is something that is not a reality until Jesus comes. Here's what John chapter 1 is going to say. You get down to verse 14, where it's been talking about Jesus as the Word. The Word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. Later, you go in John chapter 2, and Jesus is cleansing that temple that's supposed to be the house of God, and he ends up making a statement about destroy this temple and I will raise it again, and the text tells us he was not speaking of that Jerusalem temple, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, now doesn't that make sense if God... If Jesus is supposed to be God in the flesh, God dwelling among his people, isn't that what a temple was supposed to be as well? God dwelling among his, his people? That's exactly what it means for Jesus to be incarnated among us. To share the presence of God, to be a link between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. And not only that, you study this theme throughout the rest of the New Testament, you're going to see that the New Testament writers not only connect that temple idea with Jesus himself, but with all who are attached to Jesus, with all who are united with him. 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about each of us as living stones being built up into this temple. There's some references to this in Ephesians. There's 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talk about us collectively being this temple of God. And there's a lot of building language going on there about the work that we are doing. Uh, where we're even called a royal priesthood. All of this is related to Jesus establishing a new temple which is built on himself. And this vision that Ezekiel has of this living water that flows out of it, that is the water of life that Jesus offers. And if we're part of that temple, his church, his people connected with him, living stones, guess what? That water flows to us and then through us and into the world. What a beautiful idea. Temple. Here's your second idea in Ezekiel. People. People. A new people, and I mean that people collectively. 
nation may be the word that we want to use. We're talking about Israel in particular here. Not only is the temple destroyed in Ezekiel's time, the people are going into exile. They are, in effect, dying. Now, some of them have literally died, as far as a physical death. But as a nation, okay, collectively at this point, they're in exile, they are dead as a nation, collectively. And for all intents and purposes, this is a death that they have died. Death and exile often go together. That's why Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Well, they don't physically die in that moment. Physical death becomes inevitable for them, but they have sinned, and so there is exile as a result of that. Okay, it's a type of death. So as a nation, they are dead even if there is a remnant. And yet God says in Ezekiel 36 that he wants a new people. He wants to renew them. He wants to give them a new heart and a new spirit within them. Meaning he wants to transform all the inner man so that the outward man will live differently as well. And he drives home what he's talking about with one of the most memorable visions in the whole Old Testament, at least in my estimation. It's in the next chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 37. The Valley of the Dry Bones. Songs have been written about this one too. Ezekiel is shown a valley. It's probably a battlefield. It's full of dead men's bones, probably where a battle has taken place. At least, again, this is vision. Now, there are other hints and previews and even some examples in the Old Testament about God's ability to raise the dead. But the question comes to Ezekiel. Can these bones live again? Now, if you read the Psalms closely, there's some hints of even the Messiah's resurrection. Ezekiel 37 certainly affirms that God can raise the dead, that he can bring back to life out of death. And that, of course, is going to be spelled out a lot more in the New Testament. Our faith is built on the resurrection of Jesus and our own personal resurrection at the end, whenever he comes back, that we have the hope of, the expectation of. Ezekiel 37 would certainly affirm that. However, our own personal resurrection is not the primary focus of this passage. This passage primarily is about Israel as a people. A people who are as good as dead at this point when Ezekiel's receiving this vision. But they are a people whom God has the power to bring back to life by his breath, by his spirit, just as he breathed the breath of life into Adam long ago. Again, they will return to their homeland from exile a couple of generations after the vision. But that's not the complete fulfillment of this vision. It can't be. They're still serving other, uh, under other people. They're very short time periods where we could say that they again have their own nation in that land of Canaan, that land of Palestine, where they are their own sovereign state again. That can't be all that this vision is about. 
Now, if you see the idea of resurrection and you see a people coming back from the dead collectively, I think there's more going on here that's connected with Jesus. The true Israel, the final destiny of Israel that God has, is an Israel that will live on regardless of geographical location. It's the way the New Testament uses the, the expression Israel. I'm thinking of places like what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. May peace be upon the Israel of God. Now who's he talking about there? He's just written a letter to Christians. Both Jews, Abraham's descendants, and Gentiles. Those who are not the biological descendants of Abraham. And yeah, he calls them collectively the Israel of God. Or... Sometimes Christians collectively, Jew or Gentile, called the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. That's the language of Israel. But it's applied to Christians, those who are in Christ. Jesus himself is Israel perfected. He fulfills, wherever you see a mistake that Israel makes in the Old Testament, you see Jesus do it the right way. Just for an example, the wilderness temptation, Israel failed. 40 years failing time and time again. Jesus lives out 40 days and he succeeds every time. He is Israel perfected. He's the new Israel. He's the beginning of the new Israel. He's redefining Israel. He's recreating Israel. Reshaping Israel to what it was intended to be all along. You even go back to the promises made to Abraham. They're not just intended for Abraham and his descendants. It's that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And that seed of Abraham is what the book of Galatians says in Jesus is what creates this new idea of Israel that we have, that we are a part of. If you are in Christ, you're an Israelite. We are called in 1 Peter chapter 2 a holy nation, a chosen race. A people for God's own possession. Those are expressions used of Israel. They're used of Christians now. Romans 11 speaks of Israel as a people, as if they are a tree, which God planted. It begins with Abraham. But in Jesus, again, people from all nations. That's what the gospel is. It's this, one of the things that the word mystery is attached to in the scriptures is that God's plan is to reach people of all nations through Jesus and make them a part of Israel. Not just the biological descendants of Abraham. Those of us who cannot trace our lineage back to Abraham, the Romans 11 uses the expression being grafted in. We're still a branch on that tree. It's the true Israel and we're just as much a part of it now. A new people. One of the messages of this book, God has the power to take a people a nation who is dead and to revive them and to bring all nations who would allow themselves to, to be a part of it. A new temple, a new people, a new shepherd. In Matthew 9.36, Jesus looks at the people of Israel and he feels compassion for them because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. The shepherds of that time. The leaders of that time were not in step with God. Now that's an echo, it's a repetition of what was going on in Ezekiel's time. 
And the chapter that's really going to focus on this is Ezekiel 34. You remember Ezekiel seeing that vision of the elders praying toward the sun instead of praying toward God? That's typical of the type of leadership they're getting in this time. So Ezekiel 34 is going to give us some more details about the failures of the leaders of that time. And by leaders, shepherds, we could be talking about kings, uh, others who were of nobility. We could be talking about the priest, again, the elders of each of the cities. Anyone who's in a position of influence, of leadership, who should be guiding others as what a good shepherd would do to what Psalm 23 says, to good pasture, to good water, you know, to protect them. And instead, the Ezekiel 34 passage calls out the shepherds for not feeding the flock and for not seeking to treat the injured in the flock, probably both physically and spiritually. The shepherds have not searched for the sheep that went astray. All the things that a good shepherd should do, they haven't been doing. And as that chapter goes on, God says, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think it's around verse 10 or 11 of that chapter. He says, all right, these shepherds have failed. I'm going to need to come myself and show you how to shepherd. And that's exactly what God does in Jesus Christ. He came not only to be the new temple and to create a new people, he came to shepherd us. He came to lead us to good pasture, to give us the abundant life, to go after the sheep who leave the flock, to be concerned about that one that wanders astray, to seek and to save the lost, to fight off our most powerful enemies, the enemies that we are not capable of conquering. He came to die for the sheep. And he came to train under shepherds to work under his leadership in shepherding, shepherding the local churches that he would set up. You'll find a lot of what I've just said in John chapter 10. You'll find the use of shepherding language applied to church leadership in places like Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter chapter 5, and Ephesians chapter 4. And all of that with Jesus as the model of the good shepherd is the answer to these issues raised in Ezekiel. In Jesus, we find answers to the questions of Ezekiel's time. Again, a people in exile, not sure about their future. They have to be asking these questions. Will there be a new temple? An even better temple, maybe. In Jesus, the answer is yes. Will Israel be made a great people again? In Jesus, the true Israel, all the citizens of the kingdom of God, from all nations who share the faith of Abraham, who have been baptized into Christ and are therefore God's children. Yes, 
there will be a great nation again, a great people. You're part of the new temple. You're part of the new people. And will this people have a shepherd, someone to lead them, someone to protect them, someone to die for them? In Jesus, the answer is once again, yes. The good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the one who feeds us, who provides for us, who protects us, and who goes after us when we're straying. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for these questions that are raised in Ezekiel and for the hope that you gave to your people in that time and to us having such a privilege of being able to see that hope fulfilled in Jesus and to be able to participate every day in knowing that we are part of your true Israel, the Israel of God, and to know that we are part of your temple your holy temple, sacred space that we collectively are and our individual bodies are a temple for you to dwell with us. And all that's possible through the work of Jesus. And we thank you that we have such a good shepherd who cares for us. May we always want to be part of his flock and to trust in his shepherding and to learn from him of what it means to be a leader. We love you, Father, and we thank you for uh, this hope that we see fulfilled and that we can participate in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, if you're struggling with something that we can pray about as the people of God, uh, we're there for each other. We are a priesthood as part of this temple. We can intercede for each other. So let us know if you have something that we, we can pray about on your behalf tonight to our great God. If you're here and you want to talk about becoming a Christian, of being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, if you have any questions about any uh, of that and what that new walk with Jesus will be like uh, or questions about whether or not you, you can truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you have questions about that, anything else, let us know tonight. As together we stand as we sing.